0: It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with, and let's work out together. Welcome to the Simply Fit podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Assoon. In this podcast, I'll be looking at three key questions related to fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I will break these down into information that is easy to understand and actionable, so that you can apply it to your life today. This podcast will give you all you need to improve your health and well-being once and for all. So sit back, listen, and most importantly, take action. Hello, you wonderful people, and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Hassoun, and I am bringing you episode 43 today. And the topics in today's episodes are very, very relevant to the modern day, building bigger glutes, fitness influencers, and of course, sandwiched between those two topics, we're going to talk about why fat loss is quicker in the early stages of your journey. And as some of you who are listening will know, aside from the podcast, I run an online health and fitness coaching service called EHC or EH coaching, which is a little bit more of a mouthful. But as I've mentioned before, a lot of the inspiration for the topics and questions I go through come from all these amazing human beings, which I work with. The way I see it is if they are asking me these questions, then there will be so many more people who want the answers to them. And if you've seen on my Instagram or website, you've seen the type of results that my phenomenal clients produce. We have clients achieving results who are business owners, single mothers, clients in their 30s, 40s, 50s. There's a variety of results that you'll be able to see across the website and Instagram as well. So their physical transformations are nothing short of phenomenal. And quite often, I try to tell the stories about my clients, how they achieve their results, etc. But what I think would be even more powerful is if they came onto the podcast and started telling their own stories and giving their key takeaways en route to getting the results of their dreams so across the coming weeks and months it's been suggested by a lot of people now i'll be interviewing a handful of my clients and you can expect to see those episodes go live across august and september so i hope you guys are looking forward to this i think they will be really really valuable so on to today's three topics and we'll be starting with the training question for a change Elliot how do I build bigger glutes? It's the million dollar question. And as I mentioned earlier, very relevant to this day and age, we've gone from does my butt look big in this to how do I make my butt look bigger in this, right? And as long as it's not via the surgical route or at the expense of having severe lower back pain, I'm all for embracing this. It's fair to say that this request is coming mostly from females around, let's say 80% of the time. But I do know men who are also noticing that they're not quite full out their genes as much as they'd like to and are seeing this as something that they want to improve on as well so People have based their businesses around booty PDF guides. Like, funnily enough, we're going to be discussing fitness influencers and the ethics of that later, but I digress. There's booty bands, booty workouts, booty builders. Most of the world wants bigger glutes. And if you are following a booty PDF guide right now, it's highly unlikely it's helping you get the gains that you're after. And as always, I want to make sure that this is simple and actionable. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you my top five ways in which you can make the glute gains that you want to make and see yourself fill out those genes and have the type of curves you're after. So tip number one, and in no particular order whatsoever, but this one is so important, be in a calorie surplus. I'm not going to go into the details of building muscles. I'm sure we've covered that in plenty of the other episodes, but most of you listening will know by now that if we want to gain muscle, it's going to be effective if we are in a calorie surplus. It can happen if we're not in a calorie surplus to a degree, but it's so much easier when you are. And you you can create a little extra shape around your glutes when you're dieting or if you're on maintenance calories. But if we're strictly talking about the most effective way to build your glutes, then extra calories will lead to more muscle and that's what we're gonna be going after. So realistically, what we're after here is muscle gain around the glutes, right? We may have favorable genetics and hold some fat, in and around the glutes, which helps with the size and shape, but not all of us can guarantee this. And also you may find that if you do go for a fat loss phase, the curves you did have before have reduced, unfortunately. And actually, as I'm on this topic, I do want to go a little off track as I think that this side note will be really worth discussing. So ladies, I'm talking to you primarily here. During your fat loss phase, it's highly likely that you'll see some loss of size around your chest. I've had plenty of emails written to me saying, Elliot, I'm losing my boobs help. What can I do? And what we've got to remember here is that your breasts are primarily made up of fat and breast tissue but honestly it's more fat than anything else and whether you keep the size in your chest or not really comes down to your body fat distribution and as we know it's not really something we can control or influence you might find this happens immediately like it does with some women or towards the back end of the fat loss phase when you know the majority of your fat storage from other areas has started to reduce significantly the long and short of this is that we can't really do a huge amount about this and it just comes down to the fact that you are dropping body fat from other areas and therefore you're probably going to drop it from your chest as well and during the reverse diet you may put some back on in this area and what i would like you guys to focus on instead is the fact you've lost body fat from the key areas that you wanted to and if you do want to win back some size in this area you can focus on building your pec muscles it's not going to do a huge amount but it will definitely contribute towards you know a larger chest area and also working on your posture too there's going to be a huge difference between the way your chest appears when you're slouched versus having optimal posture where your shoulders are back and your chest is nice and tall. So try to remember that it's incredibly normal, something you may experience on your fat loss phase. And you just want to focus on the fact that you are losing fat from the as you wanted to. And hopefully within the reverse diet, And you contributing towards the appearance of your chest with optimal posture and building your pec muscles will hopefully help that. And back onto the topic of hand, which was the loss of curves. And just like the chest, there may be a decent amount of your body fat distribution around your glutes. And during a fat loss phase, a lot of that may go. But if you focus on building muscle instead of relying on the fat that you have there, as long as you keep your protein in a good place, you train and recover regularly, you can keep your glutes more or less forever for a very, very long period of time. And being in a calorie surplus to support the growth of your glutes is only going to be very, very helpful. So number two, focus on compound movements. What's one of the most important components of building muscle? Progressive overload, right? AKA lifting more weight. Guys and girls, I'm sure you value your time. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be spending any longer in the gym than I have to. I want to be as effective and efficient as possible. So tell me, what do you think is going to be more effective? three to four heavy sets of deadlifts or some cable glute kickbacks. But Elliot, what if I want to specifically target the area of my glutes? So don't get me wrong, one or two you know, isolation exercises sprinkled throughout your workouts is certainly gonna be beneficial. And we're gonna touch on this later, but coming back to what is the most efficient and effective, it's going to be those deadlifts. It's gonna be those squats, hip thrusts, glute bridges, et cetera. It's rare you're gonna see a female with a very strong squat, very strong deadlift, Glute bridge with small glutes. However, when it comes to females who regularly do kickbacks, hip raises, those banded walks, it's not common that you're going to see them having very strong glute development. So that's worth considering when looking at your training program to develop your glutes. On to the next number three is not to overload your workouts with too much volume and doing too many isolation movements. I believe I've spoken about the concept of junk volume in episode seven, where I went through body part workouts versus full body workouts and we have to remember that we can only train as hard as we can recover most of us aren't taking performance enhancing drugs and we will only have a certain recovery capacity and once we've done maybe two to three exercises specifically on a certain muscle group or area that's going to be all we can really effectively recover from your recovery capacity is of course going to largely depend on your sleep your nutrition your training age etc but generally speaking most of us around that two to three exercise mark will only be able to recover from that amount. So if you're doing an entire glute day where you're going beyond three glute exercises in your sessions, you're probably not making the best use of your time. You want to hit that muscle group with plenty of intensity, a sufficient amount of volume, and then call it a day. Focus on recovery and go again at your next workout. And with that being said, if you only have two to three exercises, you want to make them the most effective exercises, right? So coming back to the compound movements, like exercise such as kickbacks aren't going to be the best use of your time. And if you're doing like 25 to 30 reps of these, you may feel like your glutes are pumped, which does give you the perception that it's quote unquote working, but a buildup of blood and lactic acid can happen with any muscle group. If you do enough reps, it's not a great indicator of growth. So don't be lured into that false sense of thinking you're making progress when actually you're just pumping up a muscle. So number four, this one might surprise you guys, use your glutes. And you might be a little bit confused when I say this, but I've been there during an in-person personal training session with someone when they'll do a glute bridge and they'll tell me that they don't feel it in their glutes, but they feel it in their lower back. You might have experienced this as well. So after some coaching of getting them to brace their midsection, bring their rib cage down, drive their feet and their heels into the ground, stop at the point before they excessively extend their back, and then really get them to squeeze their glutes together, all of a sudden, just body weight glute bridges are incredibly challenging. And we went through this a couple of episodes ago when I got you guys to place your finger between your elbow and squeeze as hard as you possibly can to contract your biceps, if you remember. The same goes for your glutes and just about every other muscle group, as a matter of fact. It's not just about bringing your hips up and down, it's about initiating your glutes from the very beginning and contracting them as hard as possible during the entirety of the movement. This will make a profound difference in your glute training. And you can carry this over into your deadlifts, specifically your Romanian deadlifts, your squats, and pretty much every single exercise you do. And I wanna add a little extra point here, which is also the way that you train your glutes, like in different ways. Your glutes are made up of your glute maximus, medius, and minimus. Without overcomplicating things here, the different areas of the glutes are responsible for different actions. For example, the maximus, the glute maximus that is, extends the hip, as well as abducting, which is bringing the leg away from the body and laterally rotating the hip. It pretty much brings your upper leg out and back, right? So in simple terms, the main role of the glute medius and minimus is hip abduction and stabilization. For example, when one leg comes off the ground, they both can also perform internal and external rotation of the hip and thigh. The medius can also assist inflection and extension of the hip, which is just bringing the thigh back and forward. So as you can tell, our glutes are responsible for a lot of different movements. And if we want our workouts and our assets to be well-rounded, yes, that was two glute-related puns in one sentence, <laughs> we need to do different exercises for the different actions the glutes are responsible for. For example, hip abduction machine is gonna be the best to target the glute medius fairly effectively. A Romanian deadlift is gonna be fairly effective at hitting the overall glutes in the lengthened range, and a glute bridge will be more effective at hitting the glutes in a shortened range. Using a variety of movements throughout your exercises and your workouts will help you so much with your overall glute gains. So on to number five, and I'm sorry to have to finish on a boring note, it's patience. Muscle doesn't grow quickly. There's a reason why optimal muscle building phases are one to three years versus a fat loss phase that can be three to six months. It happens a lot slower. It requires you to be consistent, to make strength gains, to recover sufficiently, and then to do this for months and months on end. For the most part, you should be able to see the fruits of your labor when focusing on glute development, even during the muscle building phase, where you actually can't see that much going on sometimes because you do gain a little bit of body fat in the process. But if you are seeing that you're filling out your genes a little bit more, use that as incentive. And I highly encourage you to employ these tips that I mentioned, and you will be on your way to some Amazing well-rounded glutes all right that wraps up the first topic and on to the next which I believe will be an interesting one for you guys to hear and us to explore Earlier, why is fat loss quicker in the earlier stages? So if you've ever tried to lose some weight, you've probably gotten started and have seen an initial like whoosh in your weight. Maybe it's one kilo in the first week, two, maybe even three, and then it continues into the second week and you're like, damn, if this continues at this pace, it's going to be a breeze. And then shortly after, what happens is the weight doesn't move for a few days, your weekly average is down by maybe a few hundred grams versus those couple of kilos that you were in the early stages, and you might have even had a fluctuation upwards at this point. And now you're there thinking to yourself, how is this even possible? I literally haven't changed anything that's scenario one. Scenario two is where you got going to begin with. You're doing a few workouts, maybe some steps. You tightened up your diet and the weight was flying off. It seemed like you weren't doing much, but you're getting some really good results. Three months into the journey, you're now training super hard, four times a week. Cardio is at one to two hours a week. Calories are the lowest they've ever been. You're pushing as hard as you can and you're seeing hundred grams come off the scales. And the next day you're back up by hundred grams. And then you goes back and forth, back and forth, and it goes on for days on end. And losing a kilo may take weeks compared to the days that it took before. It's safe to say that most of us have experienced this. I know I personally have. I always tell my clients about the photo shoot I did in 2019, where I was so dialed in and it still took me about two to three weeks to drop from 80.3 kilos to 79.9 Even with my years of experience and understanding, it frustrated the hell out of me. And if you've started your journey, or if you've not even started your journey yet, at least hearing about this topic will prep you for potentially what's to come in the future, even if you've not experienced this before. And before we begin, it's always worth remembering that our bodies are different. The way we respond to our diets will be different. So this isn't set to happen to everyone, but it does happen to a lot of people I work with and it's happened to myself as well. So one of the biggest reasons we see, and probably the only reason that's really worth talking about, this big drop on the scales in the initial phase is due to the loss of glycogen and water. If you've listened to this podcast before, you'll have heard me say that for every one gram of carbohydrate we consume, we also bring in three grams of water. When you start a diet, it's highly likely you'll be reducing your carbohydrates. For the most part, it will be in conjunction with dropping your fats too, but it will be a fair amount that you will drop these carbohydrates by because for us traditional Westerners, our diets tend to consist of a lot of carbs. And therefore, when we do drop these carbs, we also drop a significant amount of water and the combination of our body reducing this amount of stored glycogen and water is the reason we're seeing those big drops on the scale. It's important for me to make this distinction here too. Just because you've dropped one kilo of weight does not mean you've dropped one kilo of fat. It's highly likely that the initial weight will be mostly water and glycogen, which is why you'll feel lighter and less bloated, etc. And this is quite often why people rant and rave about keto and low carb diets and the effectiveness of them, as if you're going from a diet that's almost entirely made up of carbs to them reducing them essentially entirely, there's no doubt you're going to see some significant shifts on the scales because of that's a lot of carbs you're removing from your system. But as I mentioned, we do want to remember that this is mostly going to be weight loss from stored carbs and water versus actual fat. So don't get me wrong, you might drop a little bit of fat, but it's unlikely that it's quite as much as you expected it to be. There's also an argument to suggest that you're consuming less actual food too. If you're going from having, you know, a large breakfast sandwich that consists of maybe 150 50 to 200 grams of food to 50 grams of oats and 30 grams of whey protein, like aside from the water that's gonna come along with that, that's 80 grams worth of food compared to the breakfast sandwich, which was a lot heavier. You might be getting more food volume from veg whilst you start your new diet, but the way that that is processed compared to a muffin, for example, is very, very different. And to be honest, I would largely attribute these drops in these early stages to water and glycogen. So bear this in mind and take the early wins, but don't get falsely lured into thinking that this rate of loss will continue. Once you've been on your nutritional regime for a week or two and things start to stabilize, your glycogen and water levels will also normalize. You won't see those drastic drops that you saw in the early stages and things will be a lot more steady. So that's the main reason behind scenario one. And onto scenario two, which is probably more frustrating and almost seems quite unfair at times too. And this one isn't quite a simple scenario one either, as this could be attributed to many, many reasons. And a couple of those might be lower metabolism, stress, poor sleep quality, non-adherence, not tracking closely enough, lower expenditure, etc. So I'll go through a couple of these in detail. And if you listen to episode 28 with Danny Lai, we went through exactly what metabolism is. And how your metabolic rate actually slows down during a fat loss phase, contrary to what most people think. This is one of the reasons that we may need to reduce calories, increase your output, and why you'll need to be more adherent than ever if you wanna see continuous drops on the scale. If you're operating with a slower metabolic rate, it's quite likely that your fat loss results are going to be slower. This to a degree is kind of unavoidable, and instead of worrying about the lower metabolic rate, you can focus on bringing that back up later in the reverse diet, you'll be wanting to max out on all the other variables that are still within your control. The next aspect is stress and hormonal factors. And honestly, there is so much that goes on within our bodies. I think sometimes we don't give our bodies enough credit for everything that goes on behind the scenes that we don't actually recognize or even see. It's an incredibly complex machine, and if we are chronically stressed, we're likely to have chronically raised cortisol levels. Cortisol in regular amounts, spiking in the morning and decreasing as the days go on, is excellent and very, very helpful and actually very natural too. However, cortisol levels that are consistently elevated are problematic and may lead to things like insulin resistance, increased visceral fat storage, especially around the midsection. Suppression of your immune system, digestive challenges, etc. It's not pretty. But Elliot, I'm not really that stressed, people. Exercise is a form of stress. A calorie deficit is a form of stress. I need to repeat this. Exercise is a form of stress. A calorie deficit is a form of stress. Of course, it's a good stressor, but it's still a stressor. And if you're already mildly stressed from work, family life, relationships, et cetera, which highly likely it is, what happens when someone drops a last minute deadline on your plate or you start having some family troubles. I'm not diagnosing anyone here, but it's highly likely that your stress and your cortisol levels are going to be elevated. And the deeper we're into a calorie deficit, the more stress that that's going to cause to our body because we have less energy in the form of food coming in and our recovery capacity will naturally be lower too. This is why I preach and rave about sleep. If you're not eating as much, you need to tap into the other vital form of recovery, which is your sleep, which unfortunately most of us neglect. And also we don't always put our stress management techniques in place, which then leads to further compromised sleep and us not controlling the stress in the best way that we could. It's a bit of a vicious cycle and it then does start to make sense why you might not be dropping as much fat or body weight as you want to, right? And on that note, I should probably create an episode around the five to 10 reasons you're not dropping weight that you might not be expecting. So watch this space as that will come soon. But hopefully, Hopefully some light bulbs are coming on for you guys now. So let's set aside psychological stress for the time being and consider that regardless, our bodies are under a good amount of physiological stress and our metabolic rates are likely to be lower too. So as the fat loss phase goes on, you'll probably get more lazy about tracking. It's almost a given that you're gonna be eyeballing things more. you assume you know what 100 grams of chicken or 100 grams of rice looks like. You weigh the main things, but maybe not the small things. You lick the spoon of the peanut butter. You don't track that tiny handful of something. That drizzle of oil on your salad or that oat milk in your coffee is no longer accounted for. One or many of these things will happen. If our metabolism is lower and if we remember that our diet is a form of controlled starvation and our bodies only care that they have enough fuel to survive, guess what happens when you don't track these things diligently? You don't lose weight. You might have gotten away with these things in the early stages. You might have got away with eating out at that restaurant and just guesstimating that the meal was 600 calories, but when you get deeper into the diet, your ability to get away with these things gets lower and lower. And I'm going to wrap up this one here and I think you guys see the implications of this now and why this could be happening. And I also do want to do an entire episode on these things as it's that, you know, they're all springing to mind now, but the long and short of it is that you will experience faster losses in the earlier stages, largely attributed to glycogen and water. Your losses will slow down the deeper you get into your diet. Next is that you need to keep things even tighter. If you want to see those results continue And next is you may go through weeks where things move very, very minimally. And the final thing and the best thing you can do is ask yourself, how can I be more adherent, more diligent? And then you just need to be patient and the results will come. So I'm sure that was helpful for many of you. And on to the last subject, which is indeed a very tasty one. Elio. What are your thoughts on unethical fitness influencers? How about that for a loaded question? So I was recently interviewed on the Ethical Evolution podcast and it was a really good conversation about health and fitness, the industry, my definition of ethics, etc., and obviously its relation to health and fitness and the industry itself. In the episode, we touched on what being unethical within the industry looked like to me. And if you guys are regular listeners of the show or you follow me on Instagram, Instagram, you'll know that I rarely bash people or talk down on anyone in the industry. It doesn't necessarily mean I agree with the way that people behave and what they do, but it's just not my style. I prefer to spread the messages I believe in as far and as wide as possible and trust that this message will reach enough people, other people will come along on this journey, and it will simply overshadow the, um, trying to think of a polite word to say, but let's just put it as the aspects of the industry that I simply don't think should exist. And this question is set up in quite a weird way because it would be illogical for me to come out with and say that I agree with anything, uh, quote unquote, unethical, whether I did or didn't. But once again, I feel you guys have a good enough gauge of me and the purpose of this podcast and my mission as a human being to know I'm speaking from the heart here. So let's start with what an unethical influencer might look like. So for me, it's someone with a large platform promoting a message that they don't believe in just to get attention or validation or both. Someone with a large platform promoting a message, service, or product that they don't believe in just to profit financially. Next is someone with a large platform selling a product or service that they don't actually do themselves or didn't actually get them to where they were, but they're making out like they do. So the list goes on, but long story short, it's someone who's managed to gain a large following or influence and isn't using it in the best way that they could be even when to the untrained eye, it actually looks like they are. And this, for me, is where the problem begins. It's quite straightforward for me to see that a booty guide PDF is relatively useless. It's straightforward to me to see that a person who has an eating disorder or mental health issues is covering it up with body acceptance. It's quite straightforward for me to see someone who's selling a workout plan that "quote unquote" worked for them when they're actually taking performance enhancing drugs. So the unfortunate part is that many people won't be able to see this for what it is, and I don't see this as naivety, I see this as A, these influencers intentionally not giving the full story and the individuals who are buying these products, etc., are just taking what they hear for face value and trusting that that person is a straight up good human being, which is fair enough. We don't know what we don't know. I would probably say, you know, for me, it would be easy to be fooled by someone maybe, I don't know, in real estate investment or NFTs, for example. I don't know a lot about these products, but if someone was getting great results by the looks of things and had a large platform, I'd probably assume that maybe what they were saying is true. So I get it. But having been in the industry and a coach for around 10 years now and training for longer, it's much easier for me to see through it. And it's also hard to watch it and be unaffected by so many people buying into this nonsense that all of these people seem to be promoting. I want to give you guys an example of an influencer that I've been observing for many years now and I'm going to do my best to conceal the gender here as I don't want to be outing people. I have no interest in doing that. So initially this person gained a good amount of traction for actually good reasons. Like their content was solid. They were constantly looking to up-level their skill set. They had a fairly ethical approach. I don't think they were really selling anything. And since then their content has shifted to the challenges around the image that certain people should look like posting about overeating and saying it's okay to eat and. Amount of food. It's okay to go through tough times. We should embrace the way our bodies look, etc. And I don't disagree with these messages per se. But what I do disagree with is when these messages are just being said to justify your current struggles, the individuals who posting this struggles, I believe this happens more than we realize. So stay with me here, as I don't believe everyone will agree with me, but do your best to try and approach this from a neutral perspective. There's a concept I heard recently. After doing some research, I don't think the name of this concept is actually correct, so I'm just gonna do my best to explain it rather than giving it a name. There will be a handful of people who genuinely believe in the body positivity movement, accepting their body for what it is. They enjoy being whatever size or shape they are. However, I do believe that the people who are truly to their core believe in that is a very small percentage of people. I believe that a lot of others... And this is what the concept explains. Jump onto the bandwagon of this because they actually struggle with these specific challenges themselves. And rather than facing this, they decide to adopt the movement or the mindset that's the opposite. So in reality, a lot of people embrace the body positivity movement because they've not actually found a way to live a healthy and fit lifestyle. People who hate successful people are generally people who never defined success for themselves and probably didn't have the work ethic or resilience to get there. People who are resentful towards financially affluent people are those who never understood how to get financially abundant. It's not that they're pro-body positivity, anti-capitalist, or not supportive of certain successful individuals. They simply couldn't work out how to do it themselves and therefore went to the other extreme. Stop and think about that for a second. It does force you to really face your biases, but I think this is a really powerful thought exercise. So coming full circle to the influencer, this concept seems very applicable to them. And although, you know, when it's just a personal bias, it's not really hurting anyone but yourself, that is. However, when you have a million followers or so, sending out a message that you don't actually believe in, for me, is a pretty risky thing to be doing. People are impressionable. As humans, from an evolutionary perspective, we love having a leader, someone to look towards. And when you hold that level of weight through the platform that you have, I do believe you need to be mindful of your words and your messaging. I'm not saying it's easy whatsoever. I've faced some personal challenges and it would be very easy for these to show up in my content. And in some way they did, but it was more about overcoming them as opposed to giving into them and accepting that current reality. I'm not perfect and probably will make mistakes, but I would do my best to always ask myself, is this me talking or is this my current biases, my struggles, etc.? And to come full circle, they have this specific fitness influencer has a fitness app which to me seems a bit conflicting. They promote body acceptance, not giving it to society's idea of what we should look like, yet they're charging their followers for a fitness app. For me, that's a conflicting message. If they had a course that they were selling on body positivity and acceptance, I'd get it. But it's actually the opposite message. And you do have to ask yourself, what's the purpose in creating that app? is it to really help people or is it just to gain profit off your large following? I don't see anything wrong with this whatsoever. If you can profit off your passion, I think that's awesome actually. But if you don't actually believe in the message of tracking, lurking a certain way, but you have a product that essentially promotes that, it just doesn't make sense to me and in my eyes it does seem a bit unethical this isn't the worst example but it's more of an under the radar example that i think happens a lot more than people are aware of it's a little easier to recognize when someone is promoting the 6 weeks to abs program because most of us know by now no one is really getting abs in 6 weeks unless they're already very very lean but it's much more challenging to see examples like the one i just mentioned and it's always worth questioning the motive so i guess that leaves us with the question what are we to do about about all of this. For myself, it's creating content like this, simple and actionable advice, which I do my best not to be biased with. I appreciate it will be biased at times, but I generally let you go, guys know when I do have a proclivity towards something with the goal of giving you easy to understand info that you can apply to your journey. For me, it's also providing a bespoke coaching service where I'm working with you to get you to your goals, not my goals, in the most ethical and effective way as possible. And then obviously spreading that word as much as I possibly can. The advice I'd give to you guys listening is to ask yourself, why am I following or listening to this person's advice? If it's purely based on their appearance, be mindful of this. Is their message consistent, or does one day they say something and the next is something else? Is what they say backed by science, evidence, or other people? Finally, do they look like they live and breathe their message? Does it come across as genuine? It's very easy to hide behind a facade of social media, but if you're vigilant, you should be able to see people's true intentions. All right. So that is my thoughts on unethical fitness influencers or influencers in general and what we can do to make sure we don't get trapped by their false messages. So this podcast will always do its best to spread neutral and helpful messages. So help me spread this even further by sharing this on your Instagram story, giving the show a five-star rating and review. It is always much appreciated. So that wraps up today's episode. I hope you all took plenty away. Take care and we'll speak very soon.